This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 18 Returning health and peace of mind gave a new interest to everything around me. I sought to diversify my time by as many enjoyments as lay within reach. Bathing in company with troops of girls formed one of my chief amusements. We sometimes enjoyed the recreation in the waters of a miniature lake into which the central stream of the valley expanded. This lovely sheet of water was almost circular in figure, and about three hundred yards across. Its beauty was indescribable. All around its banks waved luxuriant masses of tropical foliage, soaring high above which were to be seen here and there the symmetrical shaft of the coconut tree, surmounted by its tuft of graceful branches, drooping in the air like so many waving ostrich plumes. The ease and grace with which the maidens of the valley propelled themselves through the water, and their familiarity with the element, were truly astonishing. Sometimes they might be seen gliding along, just under the surface, without apparently moving hand or foot, then throwing themselves on their sides, they darted through the water, revealing glimpses of their forms, as in the course of their rapid progress they shot for an instant partly into the air. At one moment they dived deep down into the water, and the next they rose bounding to the surface. I remember upon one occasion plunging in among a parcel of these river nymphs, and counting vainly upon my superior strength, sought to drag some of them under the water, but I quickly repented my temerity. The amphibious young creatures swarmed about me like a shoal of dolphins, and seizing hold of my devoted limbs, tumbled me about and ducked me under the surface, until from the strange noises which rang in my ears, and the supernatural visions dancing before my eyes, I thought I was in the land of spirits. I stood indeed as little chance among them as a cumbrous whale attacked on all sides by a legion of swordfish. When at length they relinquished their hold of me, they swam away in every direction, laughing at my clumsy endeavors to reach them. There was no boat on the lake, but at my solicitation, and for my special use, some of the young men attached to Marheyo's household, under the direction of the indefatigable Kori Kori, brought up a light and tastefully carved canoe from the sea. It was launched upon the sheet of water, and floated there as gracefully as a swan. But, melancholy to relate, it produced an effect I had not anticipated. The sweet nymphs, who had sported with me before in the lake, now all fled its vicinity. The prohibited craft, guarded by the edicts of the taboo, extended the prohibition to the waters in which it lay. For a few days, Kori Kori, with one or two other youths, accompanied me in my excursions to the lake, and while I paddled about in my light canoe, would swim after me, shouting and gambling in pursuit. But I was ever partial to what is termed in the young man's own book, the society of virtuous and intelligent young ladies, and in the absence of the mermaids, the amusement became dull and insipid. One morning I expressed to my faithful servitor my desire for the return of the nymphs. The honest fellow looked at me bewildered for a moment, and then shook his head solemnly, and murmured, Taboo! Taboo! Giving me to understand that unless the canoe was removed, 
I could not expect to have the young ladies back again. But to this procedure I was averse. I not only wanted the canoe to stay where it was, but I wanted the beauteous Fayaway to get into it, and paddle with me about the lake. This latter proposition completely horrified Cory Cory's notions of propriety. He inveighed against it, as something too monstrous to be thought of. It not only shocked their established notions of propriety, but was at variance with all their religious ordinances. However, although the taboo was a ticklish thing to meddle with, I determined to test its capabilities of resisting an attack. I consulted the chief Mahavi, who endeavored to dissuade me from my object, but I was not to be repulsed, and accordingly increased the warmth of my solicitations. At last he entered into a long, and I have no doubt a very learned and eloquent exposition of the history and nature of the taboo, as affecting this particular case, employing a variety of most extraordinary words, which, from their amazing length and sonorousness, I have every reason to believe were of a theological nature. But all that he said failed to convince me, partly perhaps because I could not comprehend a word that he uttered, but chiefly that for the life of me I could not understand why a woman should not have as much right to enter a canoe as a man. At last he became a little more rational, and intimated that, out of the abundant love he bore me, he would consult with the priests, and see what could be done. How it was that the priesthood of Taipei satisfied the affair with their consciences, I know not, but so it was and Fayaway's dispensation from this portion of the taboo was at length procured. Such an event I believe never before had occurred in the valley, but it was high time the islanders should be taught a little gallantry, and I trust that the example I set them may produce beneficial effects. Ridiculous indeed, that the lovely creatures should be obliged to paddle about in the water like so many ducks, while a parcel of great strapping fellows skimmed over its surface in their canoes. The first day after Fayaway's emancipation, I had a delightful little party on the lake, the damsel, Cory Cory, and myself. My zealous body-servant brought from the house a calabash of poe-poe, half a dozen young coconuts stripped of their husks, three pipes, as many yams, and me on his back a part of the way. Something of a load, but Cory Cory was a very strong man for his size, and by no means brittle in the spine. We had a very pleasant day. My trusty valet plied the paddle and swept us gently along the margin of the water, beneath the shades of the overhanging thickets. Fayaway and I reclined in the stern of the canoe, on the very best terms possible with one another, the gentle nymph occasionally placing her pipe to her lip and exhaling the mild fumes of the tobacco, to which her rosy breath added a fresh perfume. Strange as it may seem, there is nothing in which a young and beautiful female appears to more advantage than in the act of smoking. How captivating is a Peruvian lady, swinging in her gaily woven hammock of grass, extended between two orange trees, and inhaling the fragrance of a choice cigarro. But Fayaway, holding in her delicately formed olive hand the long yellow reed of her pipe, with its quaintly carved bowl, and every few moments languishingly giving forth light wreaths of vapor from her mouth and nostrils, looked still more engaging. We floated about thus for several hours, when I looked up to the warm, glowing, tropical sky, 
and then down into the transparent depths below, and when my eye, wandering from the bewitching scenery around, fell upon the grotesquely tattooed form of Kori Kori, and finally encountered the pensive gaze of Fayaway, I thought I had been transported to some fairy region, so unreal did everything appear. This lovely piece of water was the coolest spot in all the valley, and I now made it a place of continual resort during the hottest period of the day. One side of it lay near the termination of a long, gradually expanding gorge, which mounted to the heights that environed the vale. The strong trade wind, met in its course by these elevations, circled and eddied about their summits, and was sometimes driven down the steep ravine and swept across the valley, ruffling in its passage the otherwise tranquil surface of the lake. One day, after we had been paddling about for some time, I disembarked Kori Kori, and paddled the canoe to the windward side of the lake. As I turned the canoe, Fayaway, who was with me, seemed all at once to be struck with some happy idea. With a wild exclamation of delight, she disengaged from her person the ample robe of tapa which was knotted over her shoulder, for the purpose of shielding her from the sun, and spreading it out like a sail, stood erect with upraised arms in the head of the canoe. We American sailors pride ourselves upon our straight, clean spars, but a prettier little mast than Fayaway made was never shipped aboard of any craft. In a moment, the tapa was distended by the breeze, the long brown tresses of Fayaway streamed in the air, and the canoe glided rapidly through the water and shot towards the shore. Seated in the stern, I directed its course with my paddle until it dashed up the soft, sloping bank, and Fayaway, with a light spring, alighted on the ground, whilst Kori Kori, who had watched our maneuvers with admiration, now clapped his hands in transport, and shouted like a madman. Many a time afterwards was this feat repeated. If the reader have not observed ere this that I was the declared admirer of Miss Fayaway, all I can say is that he is little conversant with affairs of the heart, and I certainly shall not trouble myself to enlighten him any farther. Out of the calico I had brought from the ship, I made a dress for this lovely girl. In it she looked, I must confess, something like an opera dancer. The drapery of the latter damsel generally commences a little above the elbows, but my island beauties began at the waist, and terminated sufficiently far above the ground to reveal the most bewitching ankle in the universe. The day that Fayaway first wore this robe was rendered memorable by a new acquaintance being introduced to me. In the afternoon I was lying in the house, when I heard a great uproar outside. But being by this time pretty well accustomed to the wild halloos which were almost continually ringing through the valley, I paid little attention to it, until old Marheyo, under the influence of some strange excitement, rushed into my presence and communicated the astounding tidings Marnu Pemi, which, being interpreted, implied that an individual by the name of Marnu was approaching. My worthy old friend evidently expected that this intelligence would produce a great effect upon me, and for a time he stood earnestly regarding me, as if curious to see how I should conduct myself. But as I remained perfectly unmoved, the old gentleman darted out of the house again, in as great a hurry as he had entered it. Marnu. Marnu, cogitated I, I have never heard that name before, 
some distinguished character, I presume, from the prodigious riot the natives are making. The tumultuous noise drawing nearer and nearer every moment, while Marnu Marnu was shouted by every tongue. I made up my mind that some savage warrior of consequence, who had not yet enjoyed the honor of an audience, was desirous of paying his respects on the present occasion. So vain had I become by the lavish attention to which I had been accustomed, that I felt half inclined, as a punishment for such neglect, to give this Marnu a cold reception, when the excited throng came within view, convoying one of the most striking specimens of humanity that I ever beheld. The stranger could not have been more than twenty-five years of age, and was a little above the ordinary height. Had he been a single hair's breadth taller, the matchless symmetry of his form would have been destroyed. His unclad limbs were beautifully formed, whilst the elegant outline of his figure, together with his beardless cheeks, might have entitled him to the distinction of standing for the statute of the Polynesian Apollo, and indeed the oval of his countenance, and the regularity of every feature, reminded me of an antique bust. But the marble repose of art was supplied by a warmth and liveliness of expression only to be seen in the South Sea Islander, under the most favorable developments of nature. The hair of Marnu was a rich curling brown, and twined about his temples and neck in little close curling ringlets, which danced up and down continually when he was animated in conversation. His cheek was of a feminine softness, and his face was free from the least blemish of tattooing, although the rest of his body was drawn all over with fanciful figures, which, unlike the unconnected sketching usual among these natives, appeared to have been executed in conformity with some general design. The tattooing on his back in particular attracted my attention. The artist employed must indeed have excelled in his profession. Traced along the course of the spine was accurately delineated the slender, tapering, and diamond-checkered shaft of the beautiful Artu tree. Branching from the stem on either side, and disposed alternately, were the graceful branches drooping with leaves all correctly drawn and elaborately finished. Indeed, this piece of tattooing was the best specimen of the fine arts I had yet seen in Taipei. A rear view of the stranger might have suggested the idea of a spreading vine tacked against a garden wall. Upon his breast, arms, and legs were exhibited an infinite variety of figures, every one of which, however, appeared to have reference to the general effect sought to be produced. The tattooing I have described was of the brightest hue, and when contrasted with the light olive color of the skin, produced an unique and even elegant effect. A slight girdle of white tapa, scarcely two inches in width, but hanging before and behind in spreading tassels, composed the entire costume of the stranger. He advanced, surrounded by the islanders, carrying under one arm a small roll of the native cloth, and grasping in his other hand a long and richly decorated spear. His manner was that of a traveler conscious that he is approaching a comfortable stage in his journey. Every moment he turned good-humoredly to the throng around him, and gave some dashing sort of reply to their incessant queries, which appeared to convulse them with uncontrollable mirth. Struck by his demeanor, and the peculiarity of his appearance, so unlike that of the shaven-crowned and face-tattooed natives in general, 
I involuntarily rose as he entered the house, and proffered him a seat on the mats beside me. But without deigning to notice the civility, or even the more incontrovertible fact of my existence, the stranger passed on, utterly regardless of me, and flung himself upon the further end of the long couch that traversed the sole apartment of Marheyo's habitation. Had the bell of the season, in the pride of her beauty and power, been cut in a place of public resort by some supercilious exquisite, she could not have felt greater indignation than I did at this unexpected slight. I was thrown into utter astonishment. The conduct of the savages had prepared me to anticipate from every newcomer the same extravagant expressions of curiosity and regard. The singularity of his conduct, however, only roused my desire to discover who this remarkable personage might be, who now engrossed the attention of everyone. Tinor placed before him a calabash of poe-poe, from which the stranger regaled himself, alternating every mouthful with some rapid exclamation, which was eagerly caught up and echoed by the crowd that completely filled the house. When I observed the striking devotion of the natives to him, and their temporary withdrawal of all attention from myself, I felt not a little piqued. The glory of Tamo is departed, thought I, and the sooner he removes from the valley the better. These were my feelings at the moment, and they were prompted by that glorious principle inherent in all heroic natures, the strong-rooted determination to have the biggest share of the pudding, or go without any of it. Marnu, this all-attractive personage, having satisfied his hunger, and inhaled a few whiffs from a pipe which was handed to him, launched out into an harangue which completely enchained the attention of his auditors. Little as I understood of the language, yet from his animated gestures and the varying expression of his features, reflected as from so many mirrors in the countenances around him, I could easily discover the nature of those passions which he sought to arouse. From the frequent recurrence of the words Nukahiva and Frani, French, and some others with the meaning of which I was acquainted, he appeared to be rehearsing to his auditors events which had recently occurred in the neighboring bays. But how he had gained the knowledge of these matters I could not understand, unless it were that he had just come from Nukahiva, a supposition which his travel-stained appearance not a little supported. But if a native of that region, I could not account for his friendly reception at the hands of the Taipees. Never, certainly, had I beheld so powerful an exhibition of natural eloquence as Marnu displayed during the course of his oration. The grace of the attitudes into which he threw his flexible figure, the striking gestures of his naked arms, and above all the fire which shot from his brilliant eyes, imparted an effect to the continually changing accents of his voice, of which the most accomplished order might have been proud. At one moment, reclining sideways upon the mat, and leaning calmly upon his bended arm, he related circumstantially the aggressions of the French, their hostile visits to the surrounding bays, enumerating each one in succession, Hapar, Puerca, Nukahiva, Tior, and then starting to his feet and precipitating himself forward with clenched hands and a countenance distorted with passion, he poured out a tide of invectives. Falling back into an attitude of lofty command, he exhorted the Taipees to resist these encroachments, reminding them, 
with a fierce glance of exultation, that as yet the terror of their name had preserved them from attack, and with a scornful sneer he sketched in ironical terms the wondrous intrepidity of the French, who, with five war canoes and hundreds of men, had not dared to assail the naked warriors of their valley. The effect he produced upon his audience was electric. One and all they stood regarding him with sparkling eyes and trembling limbs, as though they were listening to the inspired voice of a prophet. But it soon appeared that Marnu's powers were as versatile as they were extraordinary. As soon as he had finished this vehement harangue, he threw himself again upon the mats, and, singling out individuals in the crowd, addressed them by name, in a sort of bantering style, the humor of which, though nearly hidden from me, filled the whole assembly with uproarious delight. He had a word for everybody, and, turning rapidly from one to another, gave utterance to some hasty witticism, which was sure to be followed by peals of laughter. To the females, as well as to the men, he addressed his discourse. Heaven only knows what he said to them, but he caused smiles and blushes to mantle their ingenuous faces. I am indeed very much inclined to believe that Marnu, with his handsome person and captivating manners, was a sad deceiver among the simple maidens of the island. During all this time he had never for one moment deigned to regard me. He appeared indeed to be altogether unconscious of my presence. I was utterly at a loss how to account for this extraordinary conduct. I easily perceived that he was a man of no little consequence among the islanders, that he possessed uncommon talents, and was gifted with a higher degree of knowledge than the inmates of the valley. For these reasons I therefore greatly feared lest having, from some cause or other, unfriendly feelings toward me, he might exert his powerful influence to do me mischief. It seemed evident that he was not a permanent resident of the Vale, and yet whence could he have come? On all sides the Taipees were girt in by hostile tribes, and how could he possibly, if belonging to any of these, be received with so much cordiality? The personal appearance of the enigmatical stranger suggested additional perplexities. The face, free from tattooing, and the unshaven crown, were peculiarities I had never before remarked in any part of the island, and I had always heard that the contrary were considered the indispensable distinctions of a Marquesan warrior. Altogether, the matter was perfectly incomprehensible to me, and I awaited its solution with no small degree of anxiety. At length, from certain indications, I suspected that he was making me the subject of his remarks, although he appeared cautiously to avoid either pronouncing my name or looking in the direction where I lay. All at once he rose from the mats where he had been reclining, and, still conversing, moved towards me, his eye purposely evading mine, and seated himself within less than a yard of me. I had hardly recovered from my surprise when he suddenly turned round, and with a most benignant countenance, extended his right hand gracefully towards me. Of course I accepted the courteous challenge, and as soon as our palms met, he bent towards me and murmured in musical accents, How you do? How long you been in this bay? You like this bay? 
Had I been pierced simultaneously by three Hapar spears, I could not have started more than I did at hearing these simple questions. For a moment I was overwhelmed with astonishment, and then answered something I know not what, but as soon as I regained my self-possession, the thought darted through my mind that from this individual I might obtain that information regarding Toby, which I suspected the natives had purposely withheld from me. Accordingly, I questioned him concerning the disappearance of my companion, but he denied all knowledge of the matter. I then inquired from whence he had come. He replied from Nukahiva. When I expressed my surprise, he looked at me for a moment, as if enjoying my perplexity, and then with his strange vivacity exclaimed, Ah, mi tabu, mi go Nukahiva, mi go tior, mi go taipi, mi go everywhere. Nobody harm me, me taboo. This explanation would have been altogether unintelligible to me, had it not recalled to my mind something I had previously heard concerning a singular custom among these islanders. Though the country is possessed by various tribes, whose mutual hostilities almost wholly preclude any intercourse between them, yet there are instances where a person having ratified friendly relations with some individual belonging to the valley, whose inmates are at war with his own, may, under particular restrictions, venture with impunity into the country of his friend, where, under other circumstances, he would have been treated as an enemy. In this light are personal friendships regarded among them, and the individual so protected is said to be taboo, and his person, to a certain extent, is held as sacred. Thus the stranger informed me he had access to all the valleys in the island. Curious to know how he had acquired his knowledge of English, I questioned him on the subject. At first, for some reason or other, he evaded the inquiry, but afterwards told me that when a boy, he had been carried to sea by the captain of a trading vessel, with whom he had stayed three years, living part of the time with him at Sydney, in Australia, and that at a subsequent visit to the island, the captain had, at his own request, permitted him to remain among his countrymen. The natural quickness of the savage had been wonderfully improved by his intercourse with the white men, and his partial knowledge of a foreign language gave him a great ascendancy over his less accomplished countrymen. When I asked the now affable Marnu, why it was that he had not previously spoken to me, he eagerly inquired what I had been led to think of him from his conduct in that respect. I replied that I had supposed him to be some great chief or warrior, who had seen plenty of white men before, and did not think it worth while to notice a poor sailor. At this declaration of the exalted opinion I had formed of him, he appeared vastly gratified, and gave me to understand that he had purposely behaved in that manner in order to increase my astonishment, as soon as he should see proper to address me. Marnu now sought to learn my version of the story as to how I came to be an inmate of the Taipei Valley. When I related to him the circumstances under which Toby and I had entered it, he listened with evident interest. But as soon as I alluded to the absence, yet unaccounted for, of my comrade, he endeavored to change the subject, as if it were something he desired not to agitate. It seemed indeed as if everything connected with Toby was destined to beget distrust and anxiety in my bosom. Notwithstanding Marnu's denial of any knowledge of his fate, I could not avoid suspecting that he was deceiving me, 
and this suspicion revived those frightful apprehensions with regard to my own fate, which for a short time past had subsided in my breast. Influenced by these feelings, I now felt a strong desire to avail myself of the stranger's protection, and under his safeguard to return to Nukahiva. But as soon as I hinted at this, he unhesitatingly pronounced it to be entirely impracticable, assuring me that the Taipees would never consent to my leaving the valley. Although what he said merely confirmed the impression which I had before entertained, still it increased my anxiety to escape from a captivity which, however endurable, nay, delightful, it might be in some respects, involved in its issues a fate marked by the most frightful contingencies. I could not conceal from my mind that Toby had been treated in the same friendly manner as I had been, and yet all their kindness had terminated in his mysterious disappearance. Might not the same fate await me, a fate too dreadful to think of, Stimulated by these considerations, I urged anew my request to Marnu, but he only set forth in stronger colors the impossibility of my escape, and repeated his previous declaration that the Taipees would never be brought to consent to my departure. When I endeavored to learn from him the motives which prompted them to hold me a prisoner, Marnu again assumed that mysterious tone which had tormented me with apprehensions when I had questioned him with regard to the fate of my companion. Thus repulsed, in a manner which only served, by arousing the most dreadful forebodings, to excite me to renewed attempts, I conjured him to intercede for me with the natives, and endeavor to procure their consent to my leaving them. To this he appeared strongly averse, but, yielding at last to my importunities, he addressed several of the chiefs, who with the rest had been eyeing us intently during the whole of our conversation. His petition, however, was at once met with the most violent disapprobation, manifesting itself in angry glances and gestures, and a perfect torrent of passionate words, directed to both him and myself. Marnu, evidently repenting the step he had taken, earnestly deprecated the resentment of the crowd, and in a few moments succeeded in pacifying to some extent the clamors which had broken out as soon as his proposition had been understood. With the most intense interest had I watched the reception his intercession might receive, and a bitter pang shot through my heart at the additional evidence, now furnished, of the unchangeable determination of the islanders. Marnu told me, with evident alarm in his countenance, that although admitted into the bay on a friendly footing with its inhabitants, he could not presume to meddle with their concerns, as such a procedure, if persisted in, would at once absolve the Taipees from the restraints of the taboo, although so long as he refrained from any such conduct, it screened him effectually from the consequences of the enmity they bore his tribe. At this moment, Mahavi, who was present, angrily interrupted him, and the words which he uttered, in a commanding tone, evidently meant that he must at once cease talking to me, and withdraw to the other part of the house. Marno immediately started up, hurriedly enjoining me not to address him again, and, as I valued my safety, to refrain from all further allusion to the subject of my departure. And then, in compliance with the order of the determined chief, but not before it had again been angrily repeated, 
he withdrew to a distance. I now perceived, with no small degree of apprehension, the same savage expression in the countenance of the natives which had startled me during the scene at the tea. They glanced their eyes, suspiciously from Marnu to me, as if distrusting the nature of an intercourse carried on as it was in a language they could not understand, and they seemed to harbor the belief that already we had concerted measures calculated to elude their vigilance. The lively countenances of these people are wonderfully indicative of the emotions of the soul, and the imperfections of their oral language are more than compensated for by the nervous eloquence of their looks and gestures. I could plainly trace in every varying expression of their faces all those passions which had been thus unexpectedly aroused in their bosoms. It required no reflection to convince me, from what was going on, that the injunction of Marnu was not to be rashly slighted, and accordingly, great as was the effort to suppress my feelings, I accosted Mahavi in a good-humoured tone, with a view of dissipating any ill impression he might have received. But the ireful angry chief was not so easily mollified. He rejected my advances with that peculiarly stern expression I have before described, and took care by the whole of his behaviour towards me to show the displeasure and resentment which he felt. Marnu, at the other extremity of the house, apparently desirous of making a diversion in my favour, exerted himself to amuse with his pleasantries the crowd about him. But his lively attempts were not so successful as they had previously been, and, foiled in his efforts, he rose gravely to depart. No one expressed any regret at this movement, so seizing his roll of tapa, and grasping his spear, he advanced to the front of the pipi, and waving his hand in adieu to the now silent throng, cast upon me a glance of mingled pity and reproach, and flung himself into the path which led from the house. I watched his receding figure until it was lost in the obscurity of the grove, and then gave myself up to the most desponding reflections.' 